What is up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bread to Build podcast, a project dedicated to sharing the stories of the people who build and those who help move construction forward. Before we get into it today, all we ask is if you enjoy the podcast and you enjoy this episode, please take a couple of seconds, write us an awesome review. It means a lot to us. My name is Brett Gowen. I'm the founder of Hammer and Builders of Insta. And today, joined by my co-host, Matt Pinella. Good morning, lunch, or afternoon, wherever it may be for you. Thanks for joining in to another episode. My name is Matt Pinella, known better as Matt Bangswood, a grimy carpenter from Central California. <laughs> Today, uh, we're going to be talking about how to solve your people problems, leadership, and much more. People are the biggest asset in your business, and we have an awesome guest joining us today. Eric Anderton is a trusted leadership advisor, executive mentor, an expert meeting facilitator for construction companies that range anywhere from $10 million to $1 billion. Um, he's got more than two decades of career and entrepreneurial business experience alongside of 25 years of public speaking and mentoring. He's got some things under his belt. He also just launched a new book, which we'll get into on this podcast. With that being said, uh, Eric is top of mind when you know I, I think of someone who knows construction leadership and really how to lay the foundation for your people to succeed, especially during times when the economy crashes or just shit hits the fans. So with that being said, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. I appreciate the uh, invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Eric, I, I, it is. Um, and I'm really, really excited about this uh, This topic. It's one that hit home. And you know, when you and I were, were connecting, Eric, I was like, we absolutely have to get you on the podcast um, you know, I, I did my best to give you a solid intro. Uh, is there anything before we jump in that, you know, that you would like to add about your background that would help our audience, you know, understand what you do a little bit more before we jump in today? Yeah, sure. I, I started working with contractors in 2004. Um, I was selling a leadership development program, a worldwide program in, in the area of Sacramento, California, where I'm from. And my first client ever was a construction company. Um, L LB Construction, which is a framing uh, contractor up here in Sacramento. And they're still my client today. So I didn't intend to get into working with construction companies, but I just fell in love with construction right from the beginning when I was um, beginning with the leadership development program. Um, I, I kind of resonate with folks who are in construction. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that contractors do. Um, I think there is something very powerful to be able to to um, you know, drive down the road, point to a project and say, I built that. And um, I just mm -hmm. really like the way that contractors have a, an impact, not only on their communities in terms of the buildings that they build, but also the people that they employ and, and overall just the, the long-term uh, contribution they make to the communities that they're in. What was like your, your previous exposure, Eric? Did you, did you have a fascination around the trades growing up? Did you, where, where was your, where did your exposure start? You know, it's a great question. The answer is absolutely not. I did not have a fascination around the trades. It was something that kind of found me, something that I discovered. Mm. Um, and I know it's it's um it's something where you know I'm I'm not a um I'm a builder. I'm a builder of people. That's just what where I come from in my in my background. Um, I've I have a degree in history, so I've studied people. I've studied psychology. I've studied history, both ancient and modern. And so I have an understanding of people based on the a variety of experiences I have. And I just found that. 
that understanding of people, but then the 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 way that it fit into what construction companies do in terms of building projects and building people. There was a synergy there, mm-hmm. which it just resonated with me. And when I started my own business in 2013, I pretty quickly niched down to construction and I've, you know, 99% of my clients now are, are construction. You know, I, I like that you're, you're, you're saying that you're not a huge construction background, but that's where you found yourself. Because a lot of the times we see people that say did a million in business for their first year. And then they go into, I can, I can make you millions in a year. Yeah. Right. That that's, that's the best thing that you, you understand people and you're, you're open to that. I think that's, that's a big thing. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious. What are the most common people problems you see in the construction companies today? Um, the most common problem is hiring the wrong person and putting them into the wrong position. Mm. And and the way I see that a lot of times is that every every company has a particular culture, um, a way that they behave, and what happens is they bring on someone who's perhaps technically skilled, but they're yeah. not a fit for their culture. So one of my clients, they're, they're, the purpose of their, their business that they've stated is to crush the competition. <laughs> and they're great guys, but they just love to win. And when they hire people, they look for people who are willing to have that kind of competitive edge to them. So they're, And what that means for them is if you're an estimator, you're going to be in the office at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. You're going to be working on uh, bidding and winning work, and you're not going to leave until 4.35, 5.30 in the afternoon. Or you're going to be out at networking events. You're going to be out developing relationships. You're not going to be clocking in at 8 and clocking out at 5 and just kind of going through the motions. Mm. So do you think that's always the the, the root cause? Is, I, I mean, I hear it all the time. Matt, he hears it a lot too, but it's always comes down to, you know, there's, there's not good enough people to find or, you know, even going a step further as you, you found the person they're not the right fit, but people are kind of settling because there's such a shortage of people. And so it's like, sometimes I feel like it's a, it's almost a trade-off and, and how do you balance that? Because it's like, all right, I really need this person. However, if we don't hire them, we're kind of screwed. So it's like what yep. that, that balance Yes. And so I, I agree. So this is, I think it's a very important point that you make. Um, my my philosophy and the one that I communicate with my clients is to never settle. And the analogy mm. that I use is one of a sports team. So you have in, in sports, you have a set schedule that you have to play. You, you have to show up, you've got to field, you know, however many people you have to field and you've got to play your schedule. Having said that, you're always evaluating the people who are on your team And you may frankly say, I've got five people who are A players, four people who are B players, and three people that are C players. And on this job right now, I do have some C players. Mm -hmm. But what I'm always doing, and this is one of the advantages of a downturn in the economy, is Mm -hmm. that some companies are going to struggle and B and A players are going to begin to get um, sort of released for whatever reason. I'm always looking for those A players that I can bring on board and I'm always committing to developing the people that I already have to up-level their game as much as possible. So I'm never in the mode where I'm like, man, you just got to get rid of this guy, right? Even if you do need to get rid of him, I understand that you still need to build the projects that you have. And sometimes a warm body is what you need. However, mm-hmm. you should never settle. And you should always be looking to upgrade the people in your company so that you have the right people in the right positions. I think that I, I actually just talked to somebody the other day and they told me, you know, Matt, I've got, I've got eight guys on the ground. Three of them are, are great. And the rest are just warm bodies. And I thought about it for a second. And I, 
I am a strong believer in teaching people. If they're going to be there, they might as well be learning. And I love that you just said that. If they're there, they're not just a, a useless person. You can have them learning and elevating themselves to where maybe one day they're not a C player, they're a B player. Do you do you I, think that in the worst case, I mean, we've been backed up now for a couple of years now. Do you think that that's a, a good use of time is even if they're not the best, just train them up? Well, I, I think it depends because there's there's – there's two different dynamics that are going on when when someone is an underperformer. Okay, the first question you have to ask is 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 it a matter of of their attitude, or is it a matter of their their aptitude? So if it's their mm -hmm. aptitude, right, their skill, I can train skill. But if it's their attitude, I don't care who it is. If the guy's attitude sucks, he might be the most talented person you have in terms of technical skills. But if his attitude is infecting your crew so that their production is falling or so that they're not following the guy who's leading, then I can't teach attitude, but I can teach skill. So I'm looking for people who have the right attitude so that they can then be skilled up and they can grow and C players can become B players and they can become A players. So Eric, I, I'm sure you hear this a million times. I don't have time to train people. Right. What do you have to say to the, the businesses that are operating from that mentality? Then you're going to continue to have problems. It's fair. How do you yeah. diagnose and like get them to see the value of actually investing into their people? Yeah, it's a tremendous challenge because I understand that, you know, time is money. And so if mm -hmm. I've got my guys out of the field training, that means they're not on the job site making money. Um, but then you, you have to understand that if, if that's your mentality, then don't be surprised if you have the same mistakes happening over and over and over again. And so whether it's from a hard skill perspective, a technical skill perspective, or a soft skill perspective, you do have to take time out to train. Then the other perspective is, is also one where the people who are leading, um, your foreman, your lead guys, your lead girls, your lead gals, however you want to put it, they have to have the mindset that I'm here to mentor these people as well. So that if I'm here to, to train them up so that they can run on their own without me having to be there 24 seven. And if they have that mentality, that can also help to develop your people as well. This completely ties into what I'm about to ask you, but I, I saw one of your YouTube shorts videos recently where you talk about hiring people for a more technical fit, not for conviction. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? You kind of just did with the whole leads need to be understanding that they're mentoring these people. Can you get into that a little bit? Well, when I say conviction, I, I think it's really important. Um, it, it goes back to this idea of culture. So uh, the best companies, well, every company has a culture, whether they understand it or not, right? Absolutely. Because yeah. You know, every person has that, every company, every person. The best companies understand what their culture is. And so when they are hiring, and again, this is a dynamics. It's not a magic pill. It's, it's a dynamic. When they are hiring, they are aggressive and looking for people who are going to fit that culture. So going back to my, my, my uh, client whose who's, uh, purpose is to crush the competition, when they're interviewing people, they're careful to ask them questions around work-life balance. Because frankly, at their company, the work-life balance isn't terrific. And so if mm. someone's coming in saying, I'd like some work-life balance, that's an immediate red flag for them. Even if they're skilled, even if they have a background in estimating, because if you're not willing to come in at 6.37 in the morning and stick around until five, this is not the place for you. And if you're always looking to leave by two o'clock because um, you know, you've got your kid's ball game to go to or something like that, in some companies they're encouraging that, but let's be honest up front. 
You know, if you're going to be cutting out every day to go handle this or go handle that or go handle the other thing, maybe you're not a fit for the organization and we shouldn't hire you in the first place. So having that conviction about who you are and then being willing to attract people based on that and then also repel people based on that conviction can lead to a much healthier culture. You know, we we did this recently and I didn't even understand that we were doing it. But now that you say it that way, it makes perfect sense. We've been through the hiring process a lot as we're scaling. And we've had a few people where they don't work out on Thursdays, Fridays or the weekend at all. And as much as we try to like make that fit, it's like trying to fit a big old triangle into a square. It just does not work. Like it's not the fit that we need. And as much as I aligned with them as a person, as a carpenter, on a work level, if they can't be there more than half the week, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it felt like shit saying like, Hey kid, like you're great, but this isn't going to work when like his, his ethic, his work ethic was there, but scheduling what, what you just said ties in with that scheduling thing a lot. That, that makes sense. Was the attitude so, there too, Matt, or did, or did you learn this kid okay. was on fire, but it was, it was a family problem. It was, I have to be out of town every single weekend, Saturday, Sunday, which isn't that big of a deal, but it was, I have something else Thursday, Friday, I can't be there. So mm -hmm. that was like, I, I have days where the crane shows up and it costs a lot of money. I can't just have people not there. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, so let me just say this, let me just say this. What happens with a lot of, you've got to decide as a company, are, am I going to spend my life um, revolving around my, my employees drama and issue, or am I going to set a clear course for my business? And of course people have issues. I remember when I, I was going through some particular personal challenges, you know, like 20 years ago in, in, in my life, and my employer stuck with me. But he did that because I was a baller, right? And he knew that Eric's a baller, and now he's having a little mm -hmm. dip. Let me help out Eric for a little bit, yeah, right? Knowing that Eric's not some sort of flaky dude, and he helped yeah. me out for a couple of months as I was going through some challenges, and I continued to ball. So everyone has issues. We all have challenges. We're human beings. But if you if if there's a person who's like like you just described, uh, Matt, that that's the kind of person. Well, dude, I like you. You are skilled, but you're just not a fit. Man, you are you're solving my problems during this podcast. I'm thinking about way too, way too much here. Oh, oh, that's that's great. Um, so so I I did kind of have a question out of curiosity, Eric. You know, given the I mean, I think we're at a little bit, we can get into this a little bit later in the podcast because, uh, you know, the whole reshuffling of the labor pool is something that we had mentioned on on two of our previous podcasts where the, the opportunity is uh, a little bit more tangible now. But the one one of the things that I talk to a lot of businesses and they it, it's like quick to hire, not so quick to fire. They're trying to hold on to people because they need warm bodies. And I feel like, let me ask you this instead of assuming um, when you talk to a lot of these businesses, you know, they need to fill a seat on the bus. And so maybe they lower their expectation level because they need a warm body on the site. How often do you see that? And two, how do you refine your, your, your process and expectation when you are going through the interview process? Yeah. So the first thing is, is I see that all the time and it, and, and it's, it's with companies that are small companies that are large they hire fast and they fire slow instead of hiring slow mm -hmm. and firing fast. And so to refine the process of hiring, first step is what we've already touched on, which is to be clear on your culture and inject that into the interview process. Second step, I recommend using assessments. There's tons of different assessments out there. I, I recommend one with my clients. 
um, assessments are not the be all and end all, but they're a part of the process. Mm -hmm. And so an assessment where you're assessing how someone thinks, how they behave, what they like to do, and how that fits in with the role that you're hiring them for, particularly if it's a higher level management role, and you're going to be paying this person, you know, $150,000 salary and, you know, whatever the case may be. And then the, the third step is, is after you're clear on your convictions and you're injecting those into the hiring process, you're using an assessment. The third one is to really check the references and to actually do that and to have clear conversations with people about how does this person succeed? How has this person failed? Why did they leave their job? And this is a key question that I would ask every single reference that I go after. And it's this, if this person was to come back to you and reapply for a job with your company, would you hire them? Interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. And I, I think it's a killer question. It's one that I ask. It's funny. It's funny because um, I was talking to one of my clients just last week and a high level executive in their company left their company a few months ago. And they began to sort of send back out feelers to this company. And you could kind of tell that maybe this guy was kind of angling for another position. And I, mm-hmm. and I looked the guy in the eye and this is a you know $100 million plus construction company. I said, listen, if this guy comes back and he wants a job, are you going to give it to him? And he's like, nah, I'm not going to give it to him. He's done. Mm-hmm. And so you got you to be clear on that kind of stuff because these issues about hiring and then keeping people who are not a fit for your company, they will cost you millions of dollars over the lifetime of your organization. And you have to get very, very aggressive and very consistent in bringing on the right people and putting them in the right positions in your organization. Hmm. That was killer. I yeah, love I, that. Okay. Can, can I have Matt? I, we're probably going to switch gears a little bit and go into some of the office stuff, but just so I can kind of clarify, maybe for the audience too, yes. Eric, when you talk about convictions, is that, you know, gut checking on the, the person that you're going to hire, or is it overall just having conviction in your own organization or is it both? Like how, how do you, how do you define convictions when you're talking to a client of yours? It starts with you first. It's the most important thing is you, you have to be clear on, on why does my company exist? How do we behave? How are we going to be successful? What's most important right now? Those are four mm-hmm. questions that you have to ask. What's our purpose? Mm. What's our personality? What's our plan? What's our priority? With all those things in mind, I should bring those into every single interview that I do as far as hiring people. What's my plan? What's my purpose? What's my personality? What's my priority? With that, And so you have to have that kind of conviction. Mm -hmm. Then when you're interviewing someone, you have to ask yourself the question, what is it going to cost me to make a hiring mistake here? And this is the key. So let's say you're, you're hiring someone and maybe they're, you know, you're hiring an hourly worker. And so you bring them onto the job site, you figure out after two weeks that they're not a fit and then you let them go. That doesn't cost you a lot of money. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. And sometimes that's just what you have to do. And that's not, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but but if you hire someone in a in a more expensive role, it would be at a project manager, an estimator, a senior leader, someone who you're going to be investing six figures plus to bring them into the company, you must understand that to make a hiring mistake is going to cost you at least a year's salary in terms of getting rid of that person and then bringing in another person to replace them. So it's a big, big spend. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you're hiring someone, you have to, you really have to ask yourself, is this the right person for the right position? And then once you've hired them, you can't just go, whew, I've done my job, right? 
No, your job is just beginning. And it's then that you have to commit to making sure that their first 30, 60, 90 days are a tremendous success in your organization. Because what you have to do at the end of 90 days is then take a hard look at this person's contribution and ask yourself, is this the right person for my company? Because if they're not, that's when you need to cut ties with them is after that 90 day period. Because if you don't have a clear idea of whether or not they're a fit for your company in the first 90 days, then you haven't mm -hmm. done your job correctly. Yeah, that, that's a that's a key question that you should be asking is, you know, when you set that level of expectation is also asking the candidate, where do you expect to be in 90 days? And then making sure those expectations are met. And one thing that, you know, I was having a conversation with a business and you kind of just triggered this this memory for me, Eric, but he was saying something along the lines of, I mean, he he's he's about 70 employees today. Um, really, a lot of his growing pains happen around 30 to 40 employees when you really start to need to develop systems and processes. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, just putting more people on a bad system doesn't put out your fires. And, you know, Makes one of the bigger. things that he, <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, but one of the things that he mentioned was, um, you can't just hire people and expect all of your problems to go away. And I feel like I see that a lot, especially with businesses that are maybe getting up close to their scaling phases. They just feel like they need to put bodies on things and then people are going to come in and then they're just going to figure out what to do. And I feel like if you don't have like what you're kind of alluding to the conviction about your business, or at least having, you know, a clear roadmap of what this hire is going to do, they're not going to be successful because they're not going to know, come in and know your organization better than you do. And yep. you have to put that plan in place and not just be like, Hey, we're going to hire John or, or Sally. And they're going to just, you know, figure out all the processes for us. It just doesn't happen. It, I think the smartest thing to do is like do all that shit manually and then figure out like, what's the ideal process and then bring in that operator or whoever. And then, you know, then they're going to execute on that process. That, that comes with having systems in place, though, and already being somewhat of a leader, because a lot of the people that I'm talking to, they're telling me that nobody treats their business the way that they treat their business. And that's all fine and dandy, but no, nobody ever is going to. But you can put systems in place and teach mm -hmm. them and show them ways to what they're doing is more beneficial than what they were doing before. It just seems like a lot of people hire and expect that like all their problems are just going to go away. Everything's going to be cured. And if you hire somebody for an office position... No, you're never going to have any problems. And I, I think that's kind of where we're headed to with this next segment here. Um, Eric, we, we see this all the time, conflicts between the field and the office, between, say, project managers, between GCs and subs. Um, the one I hear most about is the field to office disconnect. Yep. Um, kind of curious, your point of view, what are some of the most common conflicts between the two? Um, I think a lot of the conflicts are are these ones, right? Where yeah. where mm. where there's it's it, they're pointing fingers at each other about who is responsible for what exactly. Exactly. And yeah. and so as a leader, what you have to do is you have to be very clear on what the job of the field is and what the job of the office is. Um, so what 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 are you expecting your project manager to accomplish? What are you expecting your foreman and your superintendent to accomplish? What are their roles and responsibilities? Do they understand what their role and responsibility is? Do they understand what the other people's role and responsibility is? And then are they executing it? If you're clear on that, then when you come across the various conflicts, that will help you to understand who's ultimately accountable for that particular issue. So you're saying that accountability is lacking. Basically, nobody knows who is doing what, and that's where the problems come from. Because I, I work with a lot of different builders, and 
anytime a problem comes up, say it's with billing. I talk to people on site. Oh no, that's not my deal. That that's theirs. I talk to them. Yeah. Field guys didn't turn in billing. Nothing got submitted. It's always they're blaming them and they're blaming them. And it's just a circle of shit nine times out of 10. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, that's where, where clarity on role and responsibility is important. And then communication of that role and responsibility so that everyone understands and then accountability to that role and responsibility, clarity, communication, accountability. So I want to chime in here. I've talked to a lot of field guys over the last two years, ranging a few. from <laughs> a lot, a lot. Um, ranging anywhere from like journeyman carpenters in the union to, I mean, your everyday, you know, swinging a hammer guy. Um, most of them do not respect the office. Yes. And so I get, I totally get it. If you have processes in place and you have like roles and communication and expectation, but I mean, I'll talk to some of these guys and they're like, this is their words, not mine, but they're like, they don't fucking know what I go through. And That's so right. it's like, you know, when the, when the fingers go the op opposite directions, it's usually out of like just a lack of respect for each other's role, HR or office management. You know, the, the most common thing that I'll hear from guys on the guys or gals on the field is they're like, they've never stepped on a job site. So like, why am I going to try to improve my communication if they have no idea what I have to go through to even get that, this data or whatever to them? We hear the same pushback with engineers and architects though, as well mm. with the trades too. It, it's very, but it, it's still that field to office setting. Because I, I've heard it a million times, shit looks great on paper, but does it fucking work? No. <laughs> and it's the same thing every time. And it comes down to, in my opinion, a lack of respect both ways. It, they don't care so much. Like I've seen gray areas where the architect just leaves things blank. And then I've also seen guys on site that aren't willing to communicate. So it mm -hmm. kind of goes both ways. Who's at fault though? Okay, so I think... The, the first thing that you that that everyone needs to do is they need to step back and they need to ask the question, where do we make our money? Right. In construction, where is the money made? And the way I look at it, the money's made in the field. Yeah. Right. So if you don't have guys and gals you know, in the field, building the buildings, doing the work, then you ain't going to make any money. Mm -hmm. And so the folks who are in the office, they need to understand that they're there to support the field. They're there to make sure that the field has everything that they need to execute every single day. The field needs to understand that if the, the that as the office is providing them the support that they need to execute and that they are the center of the business, they're the engine of the business, they then have a responsibility to report back to the office with the information that the office needs in order to help the field to execute at the highest possible level on a consistent basis. And so if that's the mindset that we are making our money in the field and field, you have the responsibility to report back on your production and on your issues so that we can understand what we need to do to further support you, mm. then that mindset shift can help to overcome some of the barriers question for you do you think a lot of contractors are telling their field employees that they need to be reporting back because oftentimes i hear that the office needs to be telling field what they need to be doing but it's never really the other way around what you just said right now was actually kind of a first and i, I think it's something that would help a lot so are you working with people that are having their teams communicate both ways absolutely and the, the, and that's what the most effective companies do and, mm -hmm. and they 
they they they use a combination of relationships and technology mm-hmm. to achieve this. And, and again, that perspective, the field is where we make our money. So we're here to support you. But field, we need information from you so that we can better support you. And another piece of the, of, of the, the process is this. I work with a lot of larger contractors. And um, what happens is they hire their engineers or project managers out of college. And they have their degrees. And everybody knows that they don't know anything. Except them sometimes, you know, the guys with the degrees, they think the yeah. degree qualifies them to go onto a project and tell a guy who's been uh, doing the work for 25, 30 years, you know, what they need to do. And yeah. so the, the, the office needs to come onto the, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. They need to come onto the, the job site with the appropriate combination of humility and assertiveness. Okay. Mm. Because what happens is sometimes guys come onto the job site with their degrees and think that they're the bomb and they're really not. But then on the other hand, they come on and they naturally get intimidated by the guys on the job site who are like, yeah, who screw you, buddy? You know, I'm not going to give you the information you need. You need to earn it. And so Mm. there's a tricky thing there. They need to come on and, and be willing to assert themselves appropriately, but then also show the appropriate humility so that they can build relationships with people and, and, and really, overcome those silos that exist between the field and the office that comes with being able to humble yourself being able to not you kind of have to take yourself down off that high horse and and create like a mutual respect between them yeah and that takes work it takes relationship building it takes going through conflicts um and it's it's a challenging thing what we're talking about there's no magic pills to what we're talking about here right it's not like here's the magic pill take it if anyone sells you magic pills when it comes to this stuff then they're (laughs) full of it right i wanted to chime on on the relationship component eric because i i I 100% hear you i mean you were kind of alluding to the project manager that has a degree and then you have the the industry veteran that's like uh earn the information that's right we 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 also had a uh i mean this was a a little bit ago um we had a, a podcast episode with with Jared Kaufman, um, if anybody's listening and wants to learn about the dynamics between uh, younger leaders and, and leading uh, veterans, I, I highly recommend going and checking that out. But the, the dynamic is the same, that the project manager is getting information from the the field veterans, but also maybe let's let's quickly talk on the younger leaders coming in. Because I yes. mean, that, that's a big gap too. You have the industry veteran that has 20, 30 years of experience, but then also if you have like that, that lead carpenter or that whatever it is, I mean, that dynamic is really tricky too. Cause then it's like, now I'm taking orders from this 28 year old. Like what is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, I, I think that it's incumbent upon the, the younger folks to come with a mindset of I am in a leadership role, but I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do whatever is necessary to clear the way so that you guys can mm-hmm. build safely, profitably, with high quality on a consistent basis. Now, if I need to say stuff, I'm going to say stuff, right? If I need to call you out, I'm going to call you out. But I'm not doing it because I'm trying to power trip. I'm not doing it because I'm trying to clown you. I respect you. I know that you're the heartbeat of the business. But I will lead, but I will serve as well and do whatever is necessary to make sure that you can get your job done. One thing that I will, I do want to say right here is that if anyone is listening, dealing with this, this type of dynamic, they should literally copy and paste this script from Eric and tell this to their field guys. Because, I mean, you scripted it better than probably any of us could have right now. 
And and I do think it's important as well. So like a lot of construction companies, the the guys who run them, the the owners and the presidents, they come out of the field, so they understand they understand the gig, right? They they yeah. started with their with their like my my framing company, LB Construction. Jordy and Vance started the company with one truck and their belts on, right? So mm-hmm. these guys aren't you know Harvard MBAs who just swooped in and bought a construction company. You know what I'm saying? So they know what the field goes through, but they also know what the office needs, and so. When when you have a leader who has that understanding, it's his or her job to make sure that they are getting the field and the office together and saying, guys, these are the rules of the game that we play. Now, you all need to play this game together correctly according to the rules. And then make sure that they're holding the leaders of the office and the field, the operations and the project management accountable for playing according to the rules that they establish. That kind of uh, I, I I'm wondering if this is just like a case by case thing, but is this everybody or how often are you seeing conflicts? Is this something that nearly every construction company you're dealing with deals like? Do they all have problems with conflict amongst their own employees? Yes, yes. Almost all of them or all of them. I would say all of them to one degree or another. Of course. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not unusual. So for, for, you know. Don't don't feel that you're, you know, out of, um, you know, unusual if there's conflicts between the field and the office, they're just there. Yeah. Okay. The key is making sure that you're doing whatever you can to overcome those conflicts and to minimize those conflicts. I, I said it in the beginning that you were kind of making me think about everything that's going on with our own business here. Um, let's say I had somebody that I consider to be like top performing, love the guy to death, but he has a, a conflict. And it's not something that's going to be cured. It's it's a constant thing. It does right. not change. Maybe it's a, it's a character flaw. Right. right. Do you fire? Do you, I mean, in my opinion, being completely honest with you, I do not think this is something that can change, but it doesn't, it, you're, you're like my therapist right now. I'm sorry. It doesn't affect other employees. It affects management. Okay. So, so then you have to ask, is management willing to deal with it? That's a good question. I would answer yes. Okay. So when is it yes and when is it no? Are you asking me or are you asking me? Yeah. I'm asking the therapist right now. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the answer is is I I I don't know. I don't know. Mm. So it's a case by case basis, mm-hmm. right? So another way of of putting it, Matt, is what's this costing you in terms of emotions and money? Mm. See, right. To to me, it's more of like a and I, I don't I don't want to put anybody on blast here. Um, I I don't even know if they listen to the damn podcast. To me, it's more of a I. I care about every single person that works for us. I would go to bat for any of them any day, but I don't want to think about your problems, whether they be large. If there's family problems, people just bounce. I'm I'm all for that. I, I love family, but it's little stupid things. I don't want to stress on your problems is my big thing. Am I wrong for thinking that? Okay. So here, here's, here's a, a question. Um, this is how, what the question that I ask my clients when they're dealing with a, an individual who's talented, but troubled or troubling. Matt, if this person walked into your office today and said, I'm I'm moving or I have an opportunity with another uh, company down the street and I'm going to take that opportunity, what would you do? That's a good question. Chance, chances are fight a little bit to keep, but not necessarily like this is going to make or break anything. Okay. So then there's your answer. So, but it's interesting. You said fight a little bit to keep. Why would you fight a little bit to keep? Because I know the value that they do provide is worth something. Okay, so then you have to ask yourself the question, is the value that they're providing sufficient to put up with the BS? 
so mm. far so far yes i just wanted your opinion to see if am i stupid for doing this like that that makes a lot more sense though i'm gonna i'm gonna think of it that way from now on and okay maybe so, maybe judge over the next 90 days right and if you ever get to the point where you, the answer to that question is hey it's been great having you have a nice day that's when you you need to let them go okay okay I feel like I'm in a therapy session. I love this. Thank you so much. This Eric. is good. We're, we're getting into it. Uh, I want to talk <laughs> a little bit more about like how to facilitate those conversations and like conflict resolution. So uh, maybe, maybe I'll just tee it up a little bit, but you know, let, let's talk about how to have the difficult conversations in an organization, kind of like what Matt was going to bridge into here. But, you know, one of the things that I've, I mean, it's just been like pounded in my head is how you start a conversation is typically how it will end. I picked this up from uh, Dr. Uh, John Gottman, who's an amazing psychologist. A lot of his work is just around how to make relationships work. And what he specifically said, and, I, and I'm quoting here, quoting him a little bit loosely here, but I think he was like 90 something percent of the time you can predict an outcome of a conversation based on how it starts within the first couple of minutes. Mm. So my question to you, Eric, is in such a fast paced, stressful environment like construction, and I think there's definitely some uniqueness in construction versus other industries, but specifically for the environment of construction, what do you think is the best way to handle those disagreements and conflicts as they come up when you got 10,000 balls in the air that you're trying to juggle? Yeah. I think the first thing you have to do is you do have to set aside time to have that individual one-on-one -on -one conversation. Mm -hmm. And then when you're having an individual confrontation, you, you, you need to get right to the point. And so um, I, there's a model that I use that that um, I learned from Susan Scott um, and her book, Fierce Conversations, and it's a model that I teach consistently. And um, what it does is it helps you to get into a one-on-one um, -on -one confrontation with someone very quickly. So the first thing you have to do is you have to name the issue. Okay, so let's say the issue is a, a lack of urgency and a lack of planning. Okay, that's the issue that someone has. So it's a project manager, you're not planning the work um, correctly, and you have a lack of urgency in terms of dealing with issues. Then after you name the issue, you select a specific example that illustrates the behavior or situation you want to change. So you never go with, you, you always do this or you never do that. You never do that, right? You always name the issue and then give a specific example. So yesterday with this particular project, it took you 14, uh, the, the crew 14 hours to put down 400 tons of, of, um, of, of concrete, and it shouldn't take that long. So this is the issue. Here's a specific yeah. example of it. Then you describe your emotions about the situation. You say, listen, I'm frustrated as a result of this issue because it has an impact on the financial health of the company and the relationships with the client. Then you clarify what's at stake. Now, this is very important in the confrontation because if, if you're my boss and you're coming to me, the first thing I'm asking is what's at stake here? Is this my job? Is this my position? Is this just a, you know, a, a, a reprimand? What's at stake? So if his job or her job is at stake, you need to say that right up front. Mm. Okay. Then what you do is if you, you identify your contribution to the problem, if you've contributed to the problem in some way. So for instance, maybe I might say in this situation, you're not very good at planning. And I have to say that I haven't been good enough at teaching you how to plan. Okay, so if you've contributed to the problem, you need to say that because you know what it's like when someone comes to you and starts confronting you, the first thing that you're doing in your head is you're saying, yeah, right, right? This is happening because you haven't done X, Y, and Z. So if there is an X, Y, and Z there, you need to say that. 
Mm. And you indicate your wish to resolve the problem. Because if you're having a confrontation that isn't, I'm firing you right now, that means you do wish to resolve the problem. And you need to let people know that. And then after that, you invite your partner to respond, right? So you name the issue, you select a specific example, describe your emotions, clarify what's at stake, identify your contribution mm. to the problem, indicate your wish to resolve it, and then invite your partner to respond. And you should do that in 60 seconds. Holy shit. Seriously, you got to prep though. If you prep that, you can do that yeah. in 60 seconds. So I can say, yeah, Dave, yeah. I, I'm concerned yeah, with your lack of urgency. Yeah, I'm concerned with your lack of urgency on, on this project. Yesterday in, in you know, Atascadero, where you're from, Matt, on this particular project, you didn't kick ass there. And as a result of that, that's um, causing me great frustration and it's impacting our relationship with the client. If this doesn't get fixed, I'm sorry, but your job's at stake. This is key. You've got to nail this. I know I haven't given you enough training. I'm, I'm committed to giving you that training. And... I want to resolve this issue. Can you give me your perspective on what's going on? So I did that in about 60 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So I'm kind of curious then, um, what's your framework for, for handling those disagreements then? I, I, I have a slightly different framework, Breck, and the one that I use is, <clears throat> is disagree but commit. So, so if, if, we're, if we're in a meeting and we're talking about how we're going to run this project, and, and let's say I, I bring in my my project manager, I bring in my superintendent, I bring in my foreman, let's say I'm the chief of operations, and we're talking about how we're going to run this project. We're going through a handoff process. You might even have the estimator in there. And you're talking about how you're going to execute. And one guy has one opinion and another gal has another opinion. And you're talking about that. And there's some conflict there or, or disagreement. Mm -hmm. You allow that disagreement. But then at the end of the disagreement, someone's going to have to, at the end of the meeting, yeah. someone's going to have to make a call as to how we're going to execute this. And so at that point, even though there's disagreement, you've had a chance to give your feedback. Now let's commit to this course of action, knowing of course that, you know, we can always come back and revisit the course of action if it turns out to be the incorrect mm -hmm. one. I, I figured that that would be somewhat along the lines of your framework. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about if people are the, the root, problem and also the root solution yes obviously changes to a project are, are part of the game how do you motivate people when they're struggling it depends what area they're struggling in give me an example maybe just executing a project i mean one of the things that we kind of already talked about in the the episode is maybe the the resistance of properly collecting data from the field or the field submitting that data Yes. And so if they're not motivated to do that, which enables a, an organization to run effectively, you know, let, let's just diagnose that as a struggle to an organization on either side. How, okay. how do you, how do you motivate people when they're struggling? Again, I think it, it goes um, partly back to the idea of role and responsibility. So I have to diagnose the problem. So if someone's struggling, if they're demotivated, are they demotivated because the people that they're working with are not responding to their requests for information? If that's the case, I might need to get the field in the office together and say, listen, guys, if we're going to be able to execute this project profitably, um, field, you have a responsibility. Office, you have a responsibility. Now, both of you need to execute that responsibility. And again, it goes mm -hmm. back to me holding them accountable or their their manager holding them accountable for that. So ultimately, you're hosting an intervention to see what in the hell is going wrong and where. And at that yeah, point, you, sometimes leave, you got to do interventions. Yeah, you got to figure it out, right? Leave Leave nothing unturned and basically talk through everything. Yes. Yeah. 
And again, that's why having those regular meetings, those regular project meetings once a week where you're bringing in people and you're saying, what's the progress on the project? You're bringing in the project manager and hopefully someone from the field so the field can get their hand raised and bring in um, their their issues. That'll help you to keep these projects on track. I think that communication as a whole, it's something we've talked about way too fucking much. <laughs> communication as a whole in construction sucks. Right. I've, I've worked with too many people and I... No matter how big they are, whether they're turning 50 million, 100 million a year, they all have the same issue that nobody seems to talk. Absolutely. And so you you have to insist on that and you have to work really hard on it. And it's, it's a never ending. It's never ending. So that's why you have to get into habits of communication mm-hmm. that are based on 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 commitments in terms of. What are my daily, what's my daily rhythm of communication? What's my weekly rhythm of communication? What's my monthly rhythm of communication? And it may vary from project to project, from situation to situation, but you have to get into a a consistent routine. And then you just have to get into that habit where you're holding yourself and other people accountable for that consistent communication. So we're on the topics of meetings, Eric. Um, Two things, obviously, that you seem to be very proficient at as understanding and also coaching your clients on how to run a kick-ass meeting, but also shifting from time management to to calendar management, which we'll get into. But first, let's talk about, you know, I like your whole kind of like kick-ass meeting um, type of phrasing. But first, like, one, how do you identify a a kick-ass meeting in terms of your definition? Yes. But also, what what's that? What what would be the ideal outcome of a kick-ass meeting? How do you typically structure one? And it's a great question. So, a kick-ass <laughs> meeting is one where we have identified a specific problem, we have the right people in the room to address the problem, and we're using a very simple but powerful structure to go from problem identification to idea generation to Mm -hmm. idea prioritization and then action planning. And we're doing that in 60 minutes or less. And you see the issue, the issue with a lot of people is they, they, they try and solve problems and the leader either thinks one of two things. One, either I suck at running meetings or my team sucks and they never want to come to agreements. They're just butting heads all the time. And the problem isn't that you suck at running meetings or that you um, your team sucks. It's the structure of the meeting that's the problem. And so if you have the right structure, you can learn how to facilitate the meeting and get people to come to agreement on how you're going to solve your issues. So let me just explain that in a little bit of detail, if I may. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you need to do is to identify the problem. So let's say you have a safety issue on your projects. Your your incident rate is is not where you want it to be and you want to address safety. So you bring in people from the field, the office, your safety person, whatever the case is, and you ask the question, in what specific ways can we improve safety on our job sites in the next 90 days? Okay, so you, you have a clear question right there. And the key word in that question is the word specific. And the reason why is because the more specific you are in your thinking, the more actionable you will be in the ideas that you produce. Okay? So you bring people into the room, and let's say you have a room with seven or eight people. I would, for this type of meeting where you're looking to solve problems, I wouldn't have more than seven or eight people, uh, maybe nine at the most, because if you get too many people in, it's just too difficult to run. Okay? So you get the key people in there. And then you give them two minutes just to write as many ideas as they can come up with. 
in two minutes to that question, in what specific ways can we improve safety in the next 90 days? And in this process, at this point of the meeting, there's no bad ideas. Whatever idea you have, you write it down, you get another one, you write it down, you get another one. You're just trying to be as specific as possible and dump as much as you can in two minutes. Then you ask everyone to look at the list of ideas that they've generated and pick their top two ideas. Okay, so they've probably generated anywhere from two to six ideas in two minutes, maybe more for some people. Even if they've generated only one idea, that's fine. You ask them to pick their top two. Then you go around the room, and let's say you're in a room and you have um, a whiteboard or you have a flip chart. Even if you're out in the field, you might have a, um, you might just have a, um, a, a little iPad or something like that where you can make notes. You go around the room and you gather one idea at a time from each person. So you start and you get your first idea. They share it with you. You write it down on the board. You ask clarifying questions because sometimes people need to talk out their ideas to clarify what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the next person and get their idea. And you only let them share one idea at a time. And you go all the way around the room getting the, the um, their ideas. If you're going to participate and you're leading the meeting, you share your first idea last. Okay. Then you go back around the room and get everyone's ideas, but you go the other way. So the person who went last gets to go first the second time around. Mm -hmm. So you should get two ideas from every person in the room. Now you're going to get duplicate ideas at some point. That's fine. You just ask them to share their next best idea. So at the end of that, you should have about 12 to 15 ideas on the board on how you're going to improve safety in the next 90 days. Now, there's an old saying about meetings. When all was said and done, a lot was said and nothing was done. <laughs> so you've got this list of ideas and they're probably all really good ideas, but you're not going to execute on all of them in the next 90 days. You're just not going to do it. Yeah. So what you do then is you prioritize. And this is how you prioritize. Let's say you have 12 ideas on the board. You distribute four votes to every person in the room. So a third of the ideas and you ask them to pick their top four ideas from the list of 12, okay? And so everyone votes, you go around the room, you collect the votes, and what you'll find is that one or two ideas will get more votes than all of the other ones. And in mm -hmm. fact, what you might find in many cases, and I've been using this process for almost two decades, it'll be two decades next year, um, you'll find that the top idea the top two ideas will then be supported by the other ideas that get votes. Okay. So then what you do is you take mm -hmm. the idea that has the most votes. And so let's say it's, it's um, safety and, and the mm -hmm. best idea is we're going to have a tailgate meeting every single day for five minutes. We're going to have a five to 10 minute tailgate meeting on every single project, every single day to remind us about safety. And that, and let's say there's eight people in the room and that got six votes and that's the most votes. So you look at everyone in the room and you say, by a show of hands, if we commit in the next 90 days to having a tailgate meeting every single day to discuss safety, how many people will support that by a show of hands? And I promise you 99% of the time, you're going to get unanimous consent to that idea. And the only time you don't get unanimous consent, if someone is unclear on the idea for whatever reason. So by using this process, you get everyone to weigh in with their ideas, to evaluate the ideas, to vote on the ideas, mm -hmm. and then to support the ideas and to come to agreement on how you're going to solve your toughest challenges. And you mm -hmm. can do this in less than an hour. This is going to sound so ridiculous, but like 
what you've just explained sounds amazing for one but two this sounds like this sounds like something i would do in grade school because it works but the other thing is it's so simple that it works so well you're not just telling people how you're going to fix a problem and you're not giving them any sort of like here's a b or c here's what you're fucking doing that's going to be that that's how you get pushback but when but like you're saying, when you get their opinions on what they think could be done and they feel like they came together as a group and figured something out, I feel like that that mm-hmm. leaves every, everybody leaves the room thinking, shit, I contributed to that. Like we're, yeah. we're going to make a change. And I was part of that. And I feel like they're more entitled to want to actually push for that. That makes so much freaking sense. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. I promise you, um, if you use this process, you will find that it revolutionized the way that you run the types of meetings where you're looking to solve problems. And we know in construction, problems happen all the time. Absolutely. And so you've got to get good at solving problems and tapping into the genius of your team in order to do that. Well, I, I love that. I, I'm going to, I'm going to recap for the audience, but the the four ways to run a successful meeting, according to Eric is identify the problem, share ideas and vote prioritize them evaluation and come to an agreement. Yep. That's, that's, that's amazing. It's simple and there's agenda and like what Matt was alluding to, everybody feels like they contributed to it. Yep. And I can tell you, I've built my whole business on that one uh, framework. I mean, my business is way more than just that, but without that, I wouldn't have the business that I have now and the, and the ability to help the people that I've helped because of using that process. So, I want to talk about the, the the second thing that I was alluding to is the the changing from the uh, the time management to calendar management. Speaking yeah. of processes, but can you identify or, or or tell us a little bit more about like how you view both of them, time management versus calendar management, and like how to factor in and embrace chaos? Because I think that's really really important for a lot of folks in construction to learn more about. So, so it's basically a mindset shift. And again, this is nothing, you know, this is not rocket science by any means, yeah. but basically if you're trying to manage your time in construction, you'll fail miserably because there is so much chaos, right? So I'm coming in and I'm, you know, I've got my prioritized list of stuff I'm going to do that day. And then all of a sudden I get a call from my, my superintendent or my foreman and poof, that goes out the window and off I go, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Um, and then I come to the end of my day and my list is, I haven't done anything on my list and I wonder what happened. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to embrace chaos <laughs> and realize that much of much of time, um, especially as you're lower down in an organization, and maybe I shouldn't say lower down, the closer you are to the field, the more chaos there will be in your life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the further you get away from the field, um, the the less chaos there will be. Okay. Um, or the higher you get up in leadership. Now, you have to embrace that chaos, and let's say you're let's say you're a um, a project manager. Eighty percent of your time is going to be spent dealing with stuff, right? Answering emails, contacting clients, coordinating with the field, running around with your hair on fire. Get used to it. That's reality. Okay. Where it comes to calendar management, what you have to do is you have to ask when does my chaos occur. What are the times that my chaos occurs, generally speaking? And so maybe I've got to get my guys lined up and get them launched at seven o'clock in the morning. And, you know, from seven to 10, lots of stuff is happening. And then maybe it mellows out a little bit in the afternoon. Okay. Now I may still get a few phone calls, but there's space in the afternoon where what I can do then is shift to my calendar management mindset. And I'm going to set out blocks of time. There's going to be a time block. 
And mm -hmm. it could it could be a time block for anything. It could be a time block for, let's say I'm an estimator and a project manager. I do both. Well, I'm going to block out time in my calendar in the afternoon to work on an estimate. And for 90 minutes, I'm not going to take phone calls. I'm not going to take emails. I'm going to focus on one thing. I'm not going to multitask because multitasking doesn't work. I'm going to do <laughs> one thing. And that is work on that estimate. So prior to getting into that time block, in order for it not to be interrupted, I'm going to communicate to other people saying, hey, listen, from 1 to 2.30, I'm going to be working on an estimate unless there is an emergency. And let me define what an emergency means. Unless there is an emergency, my door is closed. I will not be interrupted. After that time block, I'm happy to answer your emails or your phone calls or to have a conversation with you. But during that time block, I'm managing my calendar and I'm focused on doing one thing. You know, I've said it a few times that I think that you're my my therapist right about now. I really do think that I'm on almost a right path. I started doing this recently because I noticed that time went out the fucking window in a hurry and yeah. that I couldn't get to anything that I wanted to during the day. So I got to a point where I would start putting the phone away, not not having emails open and just focusing on I, I wasn't doing it so much as like a scheduled thing. And we also don't have a, a huge company, but I'm able to just put everything away and work on one thing. And that way, that one thing actually gets done mm -hmm. because I was noticing it over and over that. I would say I was going to get to it, but it just wouldn't fucking happen. Yep. And it happened way too many times. Yep. And so that's where, that's where, and so this is the key, right? So like, like um, Mondays for me, I don't have client meetings on a Monday. Okay. I just don't do it. So if someone asks me, Eric, can you meet with me on a Monday? I'll say, no, I can't. I'm busy. The only mm -hmm. exception I'll make with that is let's say I'm going on a long vacation and I, I won't be around for a while. I may open up my Mondays um, for a week mm -hmm. just so that I can meet my clients' needs. But I just don't do that. I do other stuff on Mondays, you know, stuff based around my business. Yeah. And so um, um, I think it's really important for you to understand what, what time blocking means for you and what you need to uh, do in those time blocks and then discipline yourself to set that time aside Put down the crack pipe, right? This is the crack pipe. Put the crack He's holding pipe. up the phone. He's holding yeah. up the phone for That's people phone. on audio. Yeah. Put the crack pipe down, okay? <laughs> Communicate to everyone that this is what I'm doing and then discipline yourself to do that one thing. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's helped me a lot. It, it really has. The, the next thing that I want to talk about is something that I've noticed as well. So I'm hoping you can... Um, we're not going to get into the family problems that I have, but business, we're, we've done great. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about building systems and running things a bit more profitable. Um, you talk about this a lot in your new book, but let's get insights. I've seen it myself with many projects that I've ran, but as the project goes on, the profit seems to fade. It just dissipates into nowheresville, and I can't find it if I tried. What What's happening? Um, most of the time, what's happening, this is one thing that really... Um, this this happens a lot is it's the shiny new thing syndrome and this is what mm. construction companies do is they'll have a crew working on a project or a project manager working on a project and they get right to the like 85 or 90 percent completion right and then all of a sudden another project comes along and so you know what we do right we're like we start shifting resources to the new project we want to get everything kicked off nicely 
And then this other project, it just hangs around, hangs around, hangs around, hangs around, right? We try and juggle our balls in the air and all this kind of stuff. It hangs around. The punch list is out there. It never gets completed. And as a result of that, my project, uh, my profit fades away. So it's it's really challenging, right? Because the truth is, is I need to bring on this next project in order to keep you know the cash coming in and keep the company rolling over. But at the same time, and this is one of the keys, I think, is um, what companies will do is they will they will designate one person or one crew, and depends on the size of the company, who's like the project closeout expert. The person who really does a good job of saying, punch list, give me that punch list. I'm going to mm -hmm. knock those things out. And let me just go down and make sure all those things get taken care of. And maybe they have enough of energy and enough ability to be able to handle that punch list so that you can shift resources off. But you're focused on buttoning up that last 15, 10, 15% of activity so that that profit isn't fading away because you're not finishing up on time. You know, I have a guy, his name's Jay. He's great. And you what, you, what you just described is him. He is go. like, he's also our lead, but he's the most like team player person you've, you've ever met. And if he, he asks me all the time, junior, because my, my pop's business, we have the same name. So he calls me junior. He asks me all the time, junior, is there anything that you guys need taken care of to where we can move on? And it, we're, we're on a separate project and he's asking me about other mm -hmm. stuff. Like, what can we wrap up to take it off your plate? And what you just <laughs> described is him to a T and that right that there saves my ass more times than not because I can't do everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So that's, that is one, one strategy that I would encourage you to think about is getting that project closeout <laughs> expert or team, mm. someone who loves doing that kind of stuff and bang out that punch list. So stuff isn't hanging around costing you money. Yeah. I love that. Now the closer, now that, now that you've put that together, like you kind of just piece together a puzzle in my head. I'll, I'll think about that more from now on. That's someone you'll fight for. Oh, don't Eric. say that. Now, now you're making me feel bad. No, not at all, man. That's a good person to have. Eric, we were we were chatting a couple of weeks ago when we were going to tee up the, this podcast. But uh, one of the questions that I had asked you, and I really want you to share with, uh, with everybody listening today, is I, I asked you, when people call you for advice, what are they usually asking? And you mentioned two things, and I thought it was great. The first one was when a leader of a company was just promoted, Mm -hmm. And the second thing that you said was how to turn a project leader into a people leader. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the first one first. So when a leader of our company was just promoted, talk to us a little bit more about what this conversation looks like and what kind of, what, what types of advice are they looking for or, or, or you tend to give when someone was just promoted? Yeah. So when the, someone is just promoted the, the first 90 days are, are absolutely essential. So in that, in that first 90 days, what I would do is I would sit down with that person and I would walk them through what I call the high performance dashboard. Mm. And I would ask them as they're coming into this position, what do you think is the one thing that you need to achieve in the first 90 days to be able to say with any credibility, I'm getting off to a good start? And it'll be really interesting to see what they have to say, because, um, you know, if you've promoted this person into a new position, um, hopefully they have some talent, they have some capability and they have some brains and they would have a good answer to that question. Now, perhaps they wouldn't have a great answer and you can help to clarify with them what that rally cry or that one thing should be. 
And then once they've clarified that, then you ask them, okay, so if this is the one thing that you need to achieve in the first 90 days, what are your top three initiatives that are going to help you to achieve that rally cry? What are the actual things that you're going to do? Have them identify those three things. Make sure that you're aligned with them on that. Give them feedback. Mm -hmm. Get some metrics that are related to those initiatives that tell you whether or not they're executing on them in order to achieve that rally cry. Once you have that in place, then ask them, okay, in the first 90 days, what are the key relationships that you think you need to develop? So let's say if someone's coming into a project executive role, and this happens, I tell you, this happens many times in construction companies. Let's say they were picked over somebody else. And that somebody else is going to report to them. They do not like that. I just saw that happen recently. Yeah. So that is one of the key relationships. Now, relationships are two-way streets, right? So you can do whatever you can to try and build a relationship with someone. But if they don't want a relationship with you, then it ain't going to happen. But having said that, you should make a commitment to developing a relationship with that person, doing everything in your power to do that. I have a question. Do you think it would be better as a company to not publicize the fact that somebody's going to get promoted yet do it like one-on-one -on -one with that person? Because oftentimes in the, the example I'm using right now, just recently, they're, they're a, a big company here in California. It was like a fucking game of who's going to be the next boss. And yeah. there was like seven people I'm talking to. That's going to be me. And all six of them were very bummed out when the seventh one got it. And all of them had some sort of resentment towards that seventh all because of the fact that it was publicized of one of you. Do you yeah, I, okay, so so let, let me ask, answer that in a couple of ways. Um, sometimes it's unavoidable because you have to publicly post these positions in larger companies, right? Yeah, so yeah. you publicly post it and and then people apply. And of course the grapevine, you know, yeah. works and people know who's applying. Absolutely. So it's it's kind of hard to avoid it. Some that of the makes time. sense on a big, I, I guess I was thinking more from a smaller perspective. That makes sense on a big scale. Yeah. From a small scale, I mean, you, you can probably manage it a little more effectively, but this is one of the challenges with, with having a company and having limited spots for people to, to, to move up into is that sometimes people are going are gonna to have, uh, they're going to be offended that they weren't the ones picked and you do risk losing them. Um, you do risk them uh, having resentment and that's something that you just have to manage. That's a reality of business. That makes sense. I, I have a lead position opening soon and I know a couple people that are qualified for it. And I know who's going to get it eventually. So I, I kind of get that. Like, even though it's not being publicized, everybody kind of knows that it's up for grabs. So that, that makes more sense. And and so that, that also begs a question about how is it that I can keep my talent over a long period of time? Because I don't have spots for everyone in leadership at the moment, let's say. But how can I grow my company? Or how can I give people other opportunities? Like I know, I mean, I, I work with this one company, they're very large and and they purposely open up new divisions so that they can um, reposition talented people in those new divisions um, so that they don't you know, go to the competition. It's one of the reasons they, they grow their businesses so that they can make room for the talent they have in their company. So rather than losing them, they give them a place to go. Yes, exactly. But that, that's, not all, uh, that's not an option for everyone. But that is one, um, that is what I would call a strategic driver. A driver of a strategic plan could be we have talented people and we want to make room for them. So let's open up another geography or another um, project um, segment that we go after or something like that. That's, that's sort of the position that I'm in right now because I have a very talented lead, love the guy to death. And I also have another one that just came from one of our competitors. So I'm trying not to have him work directly. They're side by side. They should be at least. 
So yeah. we're, we're trying to figure out how to, to move things around to, to make it work. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. So once once they've identified those key relationships and they can be external, internal, let's say, you know, you, you've got a, a, a customer relationship that you need to shore up. Well, you tell them in the first 90 days, dude, you need to go out and uh, take this guy out for lunch, take him golfing, whatever the case is, make sure you shore up that relationship. And then after the key relationships, you then ask them the top development opportunities. What do you need to do in the first 90 days to develop yourself? What help do you need? What resources, what support in order to be able to uh, perform at a high level in your position? So get a rally cry initiative, metrics, key relationships, top development opportunities, get a dashboard in the um, right up front. And then in the first 90 days, and I know some people aren't going to like this, but you need to meet with that new person every week with the dashboard in hand and ask them, how's it going? What's working? What's not working? What help do you need? So that you can come to the end of 90 days and say, I did everything I could to make sure this person um, succeeds in their new role. And then mm -hmm. after 90 days, you just redo the dashboard and you use that on a consistent basis to help people to be focused in on how to perform at a high level. So I, I have the follow-up question now, Eric, that the second part was turning a, a project leader into a people leader. Yes. And, and I could probably make some assumptions, but we're, we don't have podcast guests on what and us making assumptions. So I want to ask you outright, but sure. what's the biggest difference that you see in a project leader and a people leader? And then how do you bridge that gap? Yeah. So projects are black and white, generally speaking, with the exception of some of the drawings being a little bit gray, <laughs> but people are gray, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? People are gray though, right? So, so there, people mm -hmm. aren't black and white. So a lot of times you get engineers who have an engineer's mindset who kick ass running a project, but then mm -hmm. when they have to um, run a team of people, they communicate in a way that's, that is, uh, can be abrupt. It can be, it can be, um, it can be emotionally unintelligent. And I don't mean, you know, being a sissy or something like that, but they just don't pick up on emotional yeah. cues sometimes. And so they need to be educated in, in how to communicate, um, how to handle people issues and how they differ from projects. And so that shift can be really challenging. So they, they have to learn how to have those difficult conversations like we talked about earlier. They have to learn how to bring people to agreement, like we talked about earlier in a meeting, not just say, hey, I know the right way to do it because I've got experience. This is how we're going to do it. But like you guys um, picked up from the process I shared, the, the act of getting people's input will get their energy then um, focused in on how to solve the issues. And then you have to, you really have to focus them in on making sure that they're holding people accountable. Because when you're, when I've only got one or two people to hold accountable, maybe I can handle that. But if I've got six or eight people to hold accountable, I need to be then consistent in meeting with them on a regular basis so that I can surface issues, I can deal with problems, and I can keep my team moving forward together. And if, if not, that's how things fall in the cracks and get left behind. Yes. And so this, this is another thing, right? Is because it's challenging because I, you know, people like, they like they didn't get into construction to lead a team of people. They got into construction to build stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. And so now they've got to shift their mindset. And they think this is the problem. They think that they're wasting time having one-on-one -on -one meetings with their people. But they're not. They're actually leveraging themselves to deal with the issues that they're having on the projects. And if you run those one-on-one -on -one meetings effectively, it'll have a massive positive impact on the business. But you have to discipline to yourself to do those on a consistent basis. That's well said. Um, Eric, we got one more thing that we want to talk about before we go and talking about your book as well. But we've had two two to three episodes where we 
got some perspective from a couple of our podcast guests on, you know, how to handle a recession, yes. how to find your mentors in terms of uh, just when things are chaotic. And also we got some really good insights to um, the market with John Burns. One thing that you mentioned is talented people are your best asset, no matter what the economy is doing. Yes. I think we can all 110% agree on that. Yes. And I couldn't agree more with this. You know, when the economy shakes or crashes, the labor pool reshuffles, we've kind of already, you alluded to this earlier in the podcast on the opportunity where if you can grab that talent, I mean, that's an opportunity that just doesn't come every single day. But when shit hits the fan as a business, how do you coach leaders and business owners on how to maintain a level of conviction in their business and in their projects that enable them to attract that talent and the best people when everybody else is stumbling over themselves and repelling the best people? How do you coach them on handling that? I, th I think you, you have to be grounded in your own personal convictions and you have to be committed to playing long-term games with long-term people. Mm. Because construction is a relationship game. And you may get away burning a couple of people and being a hard ass and all this kind of stuff. But the best contractors that I know, particularly in the culture that we're currently living in, the most successful ones, are the ones who understand that relationships are at a premium. And I am committed to playing long-term games with long-term people. So I'm going to conduct myself with integrity. I'm going to stand for what's right for the contract that we've agreed to while also being flexible where I need to be flexible. But I am I am not going, I am I'm not a fly-by-night kind of person where I just build a project and you know the economy goes south. And so therefore I'm going to go try something else. I'm long-term committed to construction. I'm long-term committed to my clients. I'm long-term committed to my community. And just having that mindset, I'm playing long-term games with long-term people. The economy is going to go up and down. Um, you know, 2008 happened, you know, almost almost 10 years ago now. Actually, no, more than 10 years. Sorry, my math's 15 terrible. 15 years ago now. 15 Holy years crap. ago, right? So I remember, dude, I remember that, right? And, and everyone... Everyone freaked out and it was really, really challenging. But you know what, man? I got clients who've been around for over 100 years. And the reason they've been around for 100 years is because they treat their people right, they work with integrity, and they are committed. They play long-term games with long-term people. We've, we've touched on this a bit before with some others, but it, it's almost like you're... I feel like too many people hire without giving people a vision of what could be working for them. And oftentimes it's here's how much you're going to make. Do you want to start tomorrow rather right. than here's, <laughs> yeah. here's where you could be. I'm serious. Dude, construction. Like I, I hear I, I've, I've hired a lot of man. people like that too, but like, I, I really enjoy having a team that knows where we're headed, what we're doing and where they could be. Yep. And a lot of the people right now I'm hearing it. We're, we're in a small area. I'm hearing a lot of local journeyman carpenters saying, Hey, you know, how, how are you looking right about now? Like we're, we're getting slow over here. And their, their boss, their leader is not telling them, hey, you know, don't worry about that. We're good. Whereas, like, personally, not to sound cocky, I'm telling our guys, don't stress on that. We've got it covered. We're, we're booked out solid. Like, we're going to keep working no matter what. We have a downturn right now. People are getting slow. 
but that's not something they have to worry about because they see that long term of mm-hmm. we're not going to be gone next May. If if I'm gone next May, I I fucked up. Yep, that's right. That's right. And so that, that's the thing, dude. Is like, so this is this is a. I was back in the day. I used to sell copy machines, right? This is back in the nineties, right? And <laughs> I love um, this. I, I know it's classic. I used to do tons <laughs> of cold calls, right? And man, I just I made dude. Anyway, but one day I walked into this one office and this, there was this guy and, you know, I don't know, I'm in my fifties now. So he's probably like my age at the time. And I was in my twenties or whatever. And I asked him, so, Hey, um, I don't know why I asked him. I said, Hey, give me some advice. And he said, okay, so let me give you some advice. Low overhead, stay humble. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Oh, Mm -hmm. now, if you want to get through a recession, that's how you're going to get through it. Low overhead, Stay humble. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Mm. And if you run your business like that every single day, particularly construction, then when the when when the recessions hit, when the bad times hit, you'll have the cash in in hand to be able to get through that. Maybe to keep guys on your most talented people. You know, you'll be keep them on for a little bit longer than maybe your competition can, and then attract that talent, and you'll be able to ride it out. But if you have high overhead. And if you're spending money on fancy toys, and if you're going around with your chest puffed up because somehow you think you're a genius because the economy is doing well and you know everyone's doing well, hold yeah. on a second. Low overhead, stay humble. It's not what you make, it's what you keep. So I, I was too young to go through 2008, but I love talking to contractors that made it through because yeah, yeah. They're, they're resilient in a way that they, they kind of like bunkered down and made it work. And hearing how they did it, like you're saying, oftentimes it's just like super lean and they pulled through. But the yep. story is always different. It varies everywhere you go. Some it does. people hired on a bunch of people and just made it through. But it, it's always interesting to me how that how that works out. Um, I, I think we're headed towards a recession myself. If not, we're already in one. Depends yeah. on who's yep. declaring that. But um, before we let you go, Eric, please tell us a little bit more about your book. Full disclosure, I bought it just before hopping on the podcast. Super stoked on it. What can people expect from it? Yeah, I I really appreciate you buying the book, by the way, Matt. And and the book is called Construction Genius. It's effective, hands-on, practical, simple, no BS leadership strategy, sales, and marketing advice for construction companies. And I'll tell you where I got the ti- the subtitle from, which I just read, The Effective Hands-On Practical. I got that actually from a client. And, and he said, mm. Eric's leadership training is effective, hands-on, practical, simple, no BS. And oh, was the like, best damn testimonial right there. That's <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's good. And so the premise of the book is, is simple. People problems are costing your construction company millions. And the book is about how to solve those people problems. I've said it forever. The construction, the building is actually the easy part and it's running the back end and keeping everybody happy, I would say, is the the biggest problem. And I think that you're you're solving a bit of a disconnect we've got there. So I'm looking forward to reading it. But where where can people pick it up? You can pick it up at constructiongeniusbook.com. Okay. And um, you can then just click on the buy now button and the website will give you a little more information. There's some, some uh, reviews already from people coming in there, dude. I mean, there's some awesome reviews. I'm, I'm really, really, really thankful for that. And you can just go out to Amazon and, and find the book and buy it. It's Kindle. Um, there's the audio version. There's the hard book, um, book version or hardcover and also the paperback version. Love it. We'll have a link in the show notes for anybody that wants to check it out as well. Yeah, and it's then- pretty, I got to tell you a funny story. One of um, somebody, um, 
in in I'm up in Sacramento here. So a, a guy contacted me. He said, I I purchased seven copies for my leadership team. Will you come by and sign them? And Aww. I was like, that was awesome. What a great thing. So Heck I went yeah. by and, and I asked the guy, you know, give me the name of the person and what's their biggest challenge. And so I could say, hey, read chapter two or read chapter six. And oh, I signed all the awesome. books. I know it was killer. I was really, really that's excited sweet. to do that. That's yep. such a personalized thing too. I know, man. It was awesome. It was just awesome. That's awesome. So where, where can people find and connect with you before we go? Um, you can find me at constructiongenius.com and then also on LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. And um, uh, you can just search for Eric Anderton. You'll find me there. He also has right a now. killer podcast. Come on, oh, yes. Eric. Yeah, sorry. 198 hey, something thank you. episodes. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, the, the the podcast is Construction Genius. It is um, it's a highly rated podcast, and I I put that down to my guests. I have killer guests on. I love doing the podcast. Um, you guys are doing a great job, by the way. You you ask great questions. Appreciate that. Um, and so congratulations. Um, keep doing it. Um, but yeah, my, my podcast has opened up so many doors for me and it's, it's, it's a, a killer place to get to know me. There, there's, there's a, there's enough to go around the table for everybody. And, um, we will include, uh, Eric's podcast construction genius in the, uh, the show notes, uh, highly recommend as well. I mean, there's a, a plethora of episodes there and, uh, Eric's goal. Can we share your goal? Sure. How many go ahead. Yeah. Eric's uh, goal is to get to 500 episodes. So, uh, we're running with the big dogs, I guess. You're going to motivate us. <laughs> we're trying to get to 20. No, we're past 20. Oh. Don't undersell us. Don't undersell us, Matt. We're we're getting somewhere. I think 50. we're at... Oh, yeah. We'll get that easily. There you go. Yeah, just, hey, dude, just <clears throat> be consistent. Keep doing what you're doing. You guys are good at, at doing the interviewing. You're, you're doing a terrific job. So, you know, just be consistent. Again, long-term games with long-term people. That's what it's all about. I love, I love that. That was That's my favorite answer to that. Um, Eric, thanks for so much for joining us on the show today. Everybody, if you enjoyed this episode and you learned something new, take a couple seconds out of your day. Write us an awesome review. It helps us. We'll see you next time on the Bread to Build podcast. Oh.